Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 25, where we're traveling back to 1967 and the 22nd winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Leon Kirchner, for his third string quartet. And I, 1967, I think of as a really big year for rock music, certainly the year of Sgt. Pepper and Psychedelia and stuff like that. Uh, and here we have, in a way, kind of something that's fitting of the times. And so I'm excited to talk about it. It is the, a little psychedelic. It is a little psychedelic. I'm excited. And uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts about uh, Kirchner? Do you know anything about him? Kirchner is one of these figures that I've heard of. But before I listened to this, I frankly hadn't listened to a lick of his music. Me too. He was one of those. I keep seeing his name. I know that he's important, that he was a great teacher, that he taught all these important composers who are working today. A long time at Harvard. I knew all that. And I had this image of him as this kind of crotchety, uh, Schoenbergian composer, mid-century America. But I had not heard a lick of his music before this. I'm totally there with you. He's one of those names. Actually, I hate to say that Roger Sessions, with whom he studied, is another one of those. I've heard some Sessions, but not really much. And uh, the experience of Kirchner is just he's like a super academic composer. That's the impression, yeah, that Mm -hmm. I have. But what's interesting is, so he studied, uh, he was the teacher of John Adams, mm-hmm. the composer John Adams, who wrote about him in his autobiography a few years ago. And this is how he described it. I love this description. It's like totally turned my impressions of Kirchner on its head. He said, at going in as a freshman to Harvard to study, he said, Kirchner was a tall, imposing man who even in his 50s had movie star charisma <laughs> and a handsome brooding face that to me looked like a cross between James Dean and Jack Kerouac. Mm. Kind of a rugged... Yeah. Rugged guy, but also very handsome and, and imposing and uh, very interesting person. I think we're going to get to some of Adam's other quotes later because he has a lot to say about him. Uh, but thinking about him following Walter Piston right. as kind of the two biggies in the middle 20th century of the, the composition teachers. So you've got Piston, who's also very academic, but different. And then Kirchner, I think. And here we have Kirchner winning just a few years after Piston won, because Piston, right as he was retiring from Harvard, he won mm-hmm. the Pulitzer, his second Pulitzer. Yeah. And now here we have Kirchner just a few years later. So there's, it's interesting because in some ways he's going to fit the profile of the Pulitzer composer, but the piece he wins for does not fit. No. I mean, we have seen since that 65 kind of debacle where they didn't award, uh, we have seen a, a change in what the Pulitzer is awarding and what they're interested in awarding. A real sea change. This is a real tumultuous time for the Pulitzer, I think. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should go tell the story. Telling the story. All right. Well, this is so interesting because this particular piece, as you probably see, it says string, third string quartet, but there's something missing from just third string quartet. An unexpected twist, yes. a surprise. Yes, it's for string quartet and electronics. Electronics. And these are great electronics. I just want to say you and I both love the sounds of these electronics. Well, this is the time period that I just love electronics. So electronic composition was pretty new still at this point. 
I mean, we really kind of see it coming. We, we talk about electronic music before, but a lot of that was just generated by electronic instruments. Like Stockhausen. And yeah, so, like so now we're seeing uh, composers who are uh, manipulating electronic sounds. And to me, when we had uh, our first little conversation around this piece, I told you that the thing this most reminded me of was the, the kind of B-movie sci-fi sounds that are so common in the 50s and the 60s. And for me, it was Forbidden Planet. So I wanted to play a little bit of Forbidden Planet Perfect. so you can get some of that in your head. Prepare your minds for a new scale of physical scientific values, gentlemen. That is a kind of Star Trek, uh, Twilight Zone-ish sound. The, the crackles, the crackles and, the, and the, ooh, I mean, all those kind of slides. Ornamentos. Love that, love yes. that sound. So to me, that's the, this is the best kind of electronic sounds, the, the real kind of mid-century B science fiction movie. I love those sounds. And to me, those are the same sounds that then are reaching into composition. So... Lewis and B.B. Barron, who did the score for Forbidden Planet, worked with John Cage on his Williams mix. Mm -hmm. So there's that connection there with the, the electronic sounds. That's just then feeding into what Kirchner is ultimately going to do. But here, combine live uh, recorded electronics and live performers, which is also something that was about 15, 20 years old at this point. People mm -hmm. had been doing, we talk, think about the kind of Bruno Moderna, his music in two dimensions, these, these kind of composers who are doing this interesting, how do you combine electronics with this live performer because of course the electronics are not going to stop they're recorded they're fixed. on a tape yeah. they're fixed they're not moving and so how do you kind of click in and have live performers who like to push and pull for their expressive nature how do they fit into this very kind of cold mechanical rigidity of the electronics and that's kind of what i think a lot of the composers and kirchner included were trying to solve that's fascinating and, and looking at his I want to get your reaction to this because on the, the program note for this third string quartet, he's, he talks about the electronic medium and he says, it's frequently spoken of as absolutely unlimited in possibilities. And yet I think this is the area which is most problematic by a third, if not second performance of even an exemplary electronic piece, one develops a certain listener's fatigue. It mm -hmm. could be boredom. There's no accident. And that's the, the thing I know a lot of composers like, live performance because there's that chance there's that element where if someone will even if it's not written will just play something different or something will happen a mistake or something will come in but when something's fixed you can't it can't change it so right. maybe he's trying to find that balance here of having those live performers especially with such a tradition of a string quartet absolutely and then with the new old and new juxtaposed together well, and it's also fascinating. In some of our research, we discovered that people talk about Kirchner's string quartets as, as tracking the phases of his compositional career. So right. this is the third. So if you go back to his first, you can hear that it's kind of um, jazzy. It's very lyrical, right? But it still has um, the the kind of uh, harmonic idiom they say of Bartok. So it's got Bartokian kinds of rhythms and rhythms and, and uh, chord constructions. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second, which is from 1958, is Schoenberg all the way. <laughs> Schoenberg all the way. This one, which is string quartet and tape. And then it took him another 40 years to write another one. 2006 is when he wrote his final one. 
And this is kind of the point at which at the end of his life, he's looking back at all the phases of his career and saying, all right, I have Bartok, I have Schoenberg, I have this kind of experimental, how do I put them all together? And so he wrote a 12 minute string quartet mm. and that kind of summarizes his, his tradition. So it's interesting to see that people are tracking his changing mm. in harmonic language and musical language through his string quartets. And we should say that he lived a very long life. A very long life. 90 years old. And so this, yeah, 2006, it was only a couple of years he died in 2009. So uh, pretty close to his death. What's so fascinating about this piece, and I don't know if you hear it, you talked earlier about that he had, he was influenced by Schoenberg and the 12, you know, knew about the 12 tone, obviously, and what Adams talks about. But yet he talks about being this intuitive composer. I think mm -hmm. Adams mentions that. You have a good quote here. Yeah, so Adams looking at his, you know, what he learned about him. He said, after being around him for a while, I began to notice the act of composing for him was something akin to self-immolation. Mm. I got the feeling that composing was meant to be a painful activity, a ferocious wrestling match with inner demons. Alas, this nearly constant feeling of pain is not uncommon among creative people. Of course, for some, the creative act is as natural as eating and sleeping. And so he, he, Adams contrasts this uh, idea of the pain that you see someone like Kirchner doing with, he contrasts it with someone like Brahms. He said, Brahms wakes up and writes motet. It kind of <laughs> flows out of him. Right. Uh, but for someone like Kirchner, it's one of those wrestling matches. And in this case, he's wrestling with the electronics. I think it's very mm -hmm. clear. Yeah, and electronics and also... He, despite knowing and being part of the whole serial era, did not go for rigidity, and he didn't, you know, use these systems, which is surprising to me. I uh, maybe, maybe I confused him with Krennic. I think Krennic was hard <laughs> Very twelve tone. tone, yeah. So, but Kirchner was not. And I'm curious. Do you know of a lot of you know your expert on this type of music? But do you know? Uh, composers who talk about being intuitive composers, because especially in this period, because we think of Elliot Carter's very systematic mm -hmm. and everything's every note is sort of it's not twelve tone, but it's still kind of precise. And you know, a lot of composers are like that. Yeah, systems were very in vogue, but I think at this same time period, you have kind of the the post cage composers. Oh right, and those those are the intuitive composers. I think about someone like Morton Feldman, who yeah. talked a lot about intuition in his compositional process. But what's interesting to me is that because of the sound, the harmonic choices that Kirchner made, my impression of him before I came here was, oh, he's a 12-tone composer. Right, right. That's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. He's not using the system fully, but a lot of the kind of aesthetics he's borrowing from. And I think that's what you're going to hear in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. So it'd be very interesting just to hear this combination, kind of very, you might say primitive electronic <laughs> sounds, but they're they're great now to listen to. But it's a first kind of attempt at uh, fixed media and electroacoustic type of music here. And uh, 1966, thinking you couldn't help, I think, but be influenced by what was going on in rock music. Well, and, you've already mentioned Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. And who's on the front of Sgt. Pepper? Stockhausen. <laughs> Stockhausen's yeah. right there in the top row. Yeah. So I think you can see this kind of connection between what was going on in rock and pop of the era and what's going on in the classical. I mean, there's a lot of kind of overlap happening Mm -hmm. and the interest in what technology can do. And Kirshner even said, uh, a later interview that he gave late in his life, he said, in the Renaissance, the most extraordinary thing about architects was they were the people in total command of their technology. And he said, that's what we should be doing as artists in the 1960s mm -hmm. in command of technology. And so this was his attempt to do that. Well, maybe we should see what it sounds like, discuss what it sounds like and go behind the notes.
Behind the notes. So one of the interesting things about this piece is it is fixed media. So Kirshner created the tape, and then he composed the string quartet to go with the tape that he had already created. So the question for us performing today is, where is the where's the tape? Like, mm. how do you perform it today? And that was a, a big question that you would think a Pulitzer Prize-winning composition would regularly be performed, right. but we've seen that it isn't the case. Definitely not. And so how do you preserve those sounds, and where do those sounds exist? That's one of the interesting stories we can get to uh, a little bit later about how this piece came together. Yeah, and he, the idea that he, he said, I set out to produce a meaningful confrontation between the new electronic sounds and those of the traditional string quartet, a kind of dialogue idea in which the electronics are integral. And then this great quote, uh, in this sense, the electronic sounds in my quartet took four days to write the notes 40 years. And That's so, a wonderful quote. Yeah. Do you feel, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about this music because it does seem very intuitive and there's not moments that really stick out. It is sort of like a, it's what about how long, 14, 15 minutes? I think 17, 18. 17, okay. So it just, it does seem very, uh, we could, for lack of a better word, through composed. Yeah, it just unspools. Yeah, unspools, yeah. yeah. So how, what do you, how do you feel the, the quartet and the electronics interact or do they fit together or? That was interesting. That's what I was listening for. Yeah. I was listening for the interactions and I was thinking, let's go ahead a couple of years to the Pulitzer, another electronic and a fixed media and acoustic instrument. We get to Mario Davidovsky in a couple of oh, years, right, right. which is very much concerned with the integration of those two. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So that's what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear it in this piece as much. There were moments there are moments where I think you can hear the interplay happening, but for me, it felt like here's an electronic and then I've put the string quartet on top, but it didn't seem like the kind of interaction. So I brought a little bit, about 45, 50 seconds, just to kind of get it into your head so you can hear some of these sounds, but also you can hear the ways that some ways it connects, but in a lot of ways they seem to be going off in their own direction. So here's a little bit of the third string quartet. It's an interesting section because sometimes you can't hear where the, you know, the strings are doing these harmonics and they seem to kind of glide right into the sounds that the electronics are making. So in that way, they're kind of connected, mm -hmm. but it's not like they're trading motives. It's not like they're taking ideas and handing them off one to the next, like you would expect even a string quartet to do. They really seem to be kind of in their own separate worlds. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting when they do come together, it's sort of this really loud so you hear the, <laughs> the spaceship oh, we do that again that's, what, <laughs> that's my favorite part <laughs> and meanwhile the strings are like bah, 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 on top of it so it almost does seem like two pieces superimposed mm -hmm. at points that just happen well it's kind of like cage you know when you have that 
you have a, a indeterminate piece, well, eventually, you know, sometime you're going to hit a triad or you're going to hit a certain recognizable thing. And yeah, eventually they're going to lock in at some point. But I find it, it is, it is through composed, but I find it kind of engaging because you don't know what's going to happen mm. next. It's completely unpredictable. And, so how's it to you? Because I thought a lot as I was listening to it of last Pulitzer winner, Leslie Bassett, mm, which mm. was very much about timbre and texture. True. This seems to be in the same vein. We're not looking at, you know, big melodic structures. We're not looking at the kinds of things that the first 20 years of Pulitzer winners were really focused on. Here we're focused more on texture and timbre. Do you see connections between the two? Uh, yeah, I think so. Certainly the choice of electronic sounds that he, he picks are very timbrally interesting and very kind of uh, identifiable. Uh, the string quartet sometimes gets a little, it's very dense mm -hmm. and very thick sounding, and maybe that was the intention. But uh, I, yeah, I, definitely not a, not an emphasis on the traditional kinds of things. And maybe it's because of the electronics. That he, or, as he says here, I compose, uh, my, my quartet is not concerned with systems, rules, procedures, or that monstrosity known as total <laughs> control. I composed it because of sheer musical urge. And so he's, it's just the joy of creating music. So, and, and timbre is a part of it mm. and trying to get different instruments and different things to have different sounds. I don't know. Well, and to me, it, this even more than the Leslie Bassett reminded me of the, the texturists coming out of yeah. Poland, yeah. which was just a couple of years before this happened. We're talking about people like um, Penderecki and yeah, Luzlowski, right? right? And I think those kinds of sounds, which at first blush, you're like, what system are they using? And you discover, no, it's a lot of just reveling in the sound that sound. they can create. And I think that's a lot of what he's doing here is going, oh, electronics, open up this broad sound world, and I can dig in. It's like a whole new sandbox I can play in. I mm -hmm. think that's really where it is. To me, the, the engaging part is not what's new. It's just being able to, to bask in those sounds for, yes. for now. And you don't know where you're going to be in five minutes. But for now, this interesting sound, you can kind of bathe in for a little while. Now, as a music theorist, that would be really, it's, it may drive me crazy because how do I analyze this music? It's really hard to analyze if there's no system. I can't say, oh, it's 12 tone or it's, I can use sets or I can do anything. No, I just have to, I don't know. I, I'd be curious if there were any analyses of this music. That would be interesting to see. Like to see maybe certain point, time points or how you would pick things out or repetitive cells. I don't know. And then for me as a musicologist, I think this is fascinating because it is so of its time that we've yeah. talked about. Yeah. It seems like a reaction against really the kind of post-Schoenbergian systems where everyone is trying to, as he says, total control, this yeah, idea of monstrosity. <laughs> monstrosity of total control. I'm going to borrow that. That's a good one. Yeah. But this idea that you need to control every aspect of the music, and this is the exact opposite. And there was a lot of reactions to that in the 1960s. So I think it really is of its time. But it's not like Cage's type of no, lack not at of all. control. Uh, yeah, it's it may be intuitive, but you're still making choices that then the performer is expected to reproduce the choices the composer has made. Right, right, exactly. Well, shall we uh, see uh, this is a hit or a miss? Absolutely. Hit or miss? So we've gone to the well a few times with these uh, interviews with Pulitzer Prize winners. We talked about one last time with Leslie Bassett and Bruce Duffy yeah. uh, talking about the impact of the Pulitzer on the particular composer. And we saw Bassett was kind of eh, 
nonplussed about it, not too too much of a big deal. Uh, what does what does Kirchner say about it? <laughs> Kirchner is perhaps the best response yeah. yet, because when asked, you know, what impact did winning the Pulitzer had, he said, "Well, it was very amusing." <laughs> <laughs> Not what I would say if I won a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> it was amusing that I won a Pulitzer Prize. You know, great. Yeah. Um, and I, but I think that part of the reason why he said that, uh, because he goes on later and he says, I don't think it matters much. That's always a matter of luck anyway. Mm. What captures that particular committee's attention is what's going to win the Pulitzer. True. And I think we can see that just looking over now that we have over 20 years of Pulitzer winners that we've examined, we can see that Really, it's kind of, I mean, talk about hit or miss. You never know if what they've chosen is going to last. But even from our vantage point, looking back, we say, why did you go that direction? <laughs> There's so many more interesting pieces. Yeah. Uh, so I think that he saw that. And he later said, I've sat on, on enough Pulitzer committees to see how something would go one way and something would go another way. It's just a question of a vote here or a vote there. I suppose a lot of Pulitzer pieces, you'd find a number of pieces that are still really viable and still productive and still engaging, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that would be more than works that have not received a Pulitzer. After all, did Stravinsky have a Pulitzer? Did Hindemith receive a Pulitzer? They produced a lot of fantastic music. There used to be a New York Critics Circle Award, and there were many times that this could have been a work of Bartok, a work of Stravinsky, or Hindemith, and it wasn't. Mm. So do we think that Kirchner won it because of his connections with all those famous, with Ernst Bloch and... Uh, sessions and all the names here well, who was on the committee i think that he's pointing at directly that it does we no longer have chalmers clifton no and i think we've seen without chalmers clifton there there's been a shift in who's winning the pulitzer so who was on mm -hmm. the jury that year yes yeah, so the the piece was premiered uh, as we said in january 27 1967 uh i think that might have been the day that the beatles recorded strawberry fields but i, I don't know uh, everything comes back to the beatles it always comes back close close to that time uh, but this is an interesting program. So we have uh, a Haydn string quartet, very early one, Opus mm -hmm. 9, and then the Kirchner premiere performance, intermission, and then Brahms' first quartet. So you kind of your your it's a classical sandwich here. You've got <laughs> right. Haydn, Kirchner, and Brahms, uh, with the Kirchner being the meat in the middle. So the jury, our old friend Miles Kastendick, Paul Hume, and Robert Ward. So, so past Pulitzer winner. Past Pulitzer winner, yes. So uh, Miles says, the music jury wishes to nominate Kirchner's Quartet Number 3. Uh, that's all it says. As a runner-up, and now you know this composer, I don't know any of his works, but as a runner-up, it also nominates Michael Colgrass's As Quiet As, an orchestral work first played at Tanglewood. So this is a presage of things to come, and that Michael Colgrass is going to win he in about will. a little over a decade. He'll be winning his own Pulitzer Prize. Yes, so those were the two. And then there's a note, another one from Miles saying, the jury worked most compatibly, again, a consideration That's after right. the past few years, and reached a unanimous conclusion readily. The selections should satisfy a variety of, quote, critics. Interesting. Hmm. The jury feels strongly, and this is to John, not identified. The jury feels strongly that you, underlined, should write Mr. Kennan about the union restrictions against taping performances, for obviously this limits the entries to the tapes available. It, is, it also wishes to clarify the fact that a score is not in itself sufficient, that a work must be heard to receive an award, an important fact this year since the piece made use of a tape recorder. So 
we, we are seeing a little bit of a change in the what's accepted and right. what they're allowing now. Since many composers are turning to electronic music making, the unions should do everything to promote live performances should be their concern. That is a shift in yeah. and shows the continuing ripples of the 1964, 1965 kind mm-hmm. of debacle, scandals, the scandals yeah. of, of not awarding and the the Pulitzer jury turning against the music jury and, and disregarding what they had to say. Um, but I think it's also sh- interesting that they're pointing out that they're something that appeals to the critics as mm-hmm. well as, because this is uh, not a piece that I think, if we go back to something like Appalachian Spring, you know, wide appeal. Yeah. Kirchner's third string quartet is not going to have <laughs> wide appeal. No. And I think you can see that in the fact that after it was performed in the 1960s, it disappeared. And Part so it's kind of his fault, isn't it? Some of it is his fault, but the Boston Composer String Quartet, which has now recorded it, um, when they wanted to do that, they had to go to him and find out where is the where is the tape and how can we revive it today, put it onto a digital version where we'll be able to, you know, control it with a foot pedal the way that mm-hmm. is used today. So they had to. It's a denoise, re-edit, remaster, and transfer to digital format in order to be able to perform it again. And then hopefully other quartets can begin to perform it. But you basically have about 30, 40 years there mm. where it just disappears. Hmm. So fascinating, isn't it? Just how these pieces drift in and out of, you know, here's a, a big splash piece, big name. And then the composed, I, I wonder what his, like, I don't know if interviews with him about why why he kept sat on it instead of trying to make it more available, especially when it, we got into the 90s or 20th century or 21st century, which he lived into, mm-hmm. where you could have digitized things much easier and, and gotten this piece out there. It's, well, I think if we go back to that interview that we quoted earlier, I think people who win the Pulitzer expect people to come to them mm, as yeah. opposed to them having to continue to hawk their wares, as it were. They expect, oh, I've won a Pulitzer. People will just be knocking down the door to get my pieces. Mm. <laughs> doesn't work that it's way. It's not working that way. Mm. Um, and also, I mean, he was very ensconced at Harvard, had a nice good job. Nice good cush job. Yeah. W- was uh, teaching the next generation. So I think in, in his case, it wasn't as pressing. Right. All right. So for you, Dave, hit or miss? Uh, I'm going to say it's a hit. I think it's, uh, I, it was, like I say, I listened to it, I don't know, maybe three times, and each time was different. It, it was maybe a little long uh, at times, but. I, I just was so fascinated by the electronic integration and when it would come in, it would just change, like revive my listening. Uh, so I, I think it was fascinating as a, a really early attempt at electroacoustic type yeah. music. So how about you? Not as strong of a hit yeah. <laughs> as you. Um, there were moments, but I found it very easy to drift off just oh, because yeah. there wasn't something for me to latch onto throughout the entire piece. So a lot of the kind of complaints I had about Leslie Bass that I have here, mm. what I'll say is I think the sounds were much more interesting and much more interestingly used, I think, in this piece than we saw with the Bassett last time. That That's a great point. I'll agree with that. I, I drifted sometimes during this quartet, but it, it kept my attention more than the Bassett, which... We could barely get through. So, and I barely remember here. Yeah, I don't remember a thing about it. <laughs> Just <laughs> a little bit after recording a podcast mm-hmm. about it. Well, that is it for this week of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Leon Kirchner. 
Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. And finally, join us next episode when the Pulitzer's new, more experimental bent continues with George Crumb's Echoes of Time and the River. Is my correct? Is this the first living composer that we're going to be talking about? I think this is the first one. So uh, we've, we've crossed, a, crossed another. The 60s, I tell you. We're, yeah. we're getting into the present day. Yeah. All right. And until then, keep listening. Keep listening.